Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness. It's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Welcome to Vitality Radio. My name is Jared St. Clair. I'm your host each and every week on this program. And sometimes I have a guest on that uh, really grabs a lot of attention based on the topic that we've discussed and the you know knowledge uh, that that particular guest has on that topic. And after I was done recording with this gentleman just uh, maybe a month ago, I decided I better have him on again to talk about something else that I haven't spent enough time talking about on Vitality Radio over the years. So if you did hear him before, uh, he will need no introduction. You've already uh, heard who he is, but I'll introduce him just a little bit in case you didn't. His name is Charles Hakala. He is a uh, compounding pharmacist who's been doing that for years and years and years, has a long history in uh, medicine and particularly functional medicine, working with some of the more well-known uh, doctors in the space of research of things like boron, which we talked about last time. And now we're going to talk about iodine, uh, which I've had on my list of things to really tackle on Vitality Radio for quite some time. And I thought, you know what, this guy's going to have the answers to the questions that I have myself, and I thought it would be very fascinating for you. So I'd like to welcome back to Vitality Radio, Charles Hockela. Welcome back. Thank you. Hey, it's great to have you back. Like I said, this is a, a topic that I haven't spent enough time uh, doing on Vitality Radio. It's something that I have wanted to dive into more, and uh, I am really excited about this. We had a little discussion before we started, and so I think that we've got some great points that we can share with my listeners that will be uh, very enriching in terms of their understanding of iodine and how it works in the human body. Uh, before I get into the questions, though, I have to remind everybody listening, if you do have questions about what you hear on Vitality Radio, this episode or any other, you can call us at Vitality Nutrition, 801 292 6662. That's 801-292-6662. You can jump on our website, vitalitynutrition.com. You can look around there and browse the information. You can also open up a chat if you'd like to talk to somebody there. We try to get back to you very quickly that way, or like I say, give us a call. But without further ado, let's jump right into the topic at hand, iodine. Charles, I'd like you to just describe for us a little bit, if you will, what the heck iodine is and why people need to know about it. Uh, iodine is a necessary element used by the thyroid gland, and I think that's where most people associate iodine. But it's also important for breast health, prostate, and general skin structure. So it's a vitally important nutrient for the whole body, and that's what interests me the most with iodine is it's varied in sundry uses. Well, when we talk about minerals of all kinds, and there's so many different things, we talked about boron last, last time you were on. I talk about magnesium all the time on Vitality Radio. There seems to be kind of a running theme, and that is deficiency, uh, particularly in uh, the American diet where most of our listeners are here. Um, why, do you believe that there is a general deficiency 
uh, in the general population when it comes to iodine? Yes, if you look at the World Health Organization statistics, iodine is the number one deficiency worldwide. And certainly in this country, uh, that holds true, I believe. And why do you think it is then that, generally speaking, in modern medicine, if people go into their doctor's office and ask about iodine, I hear this all the time from people that come into Vitality, that they say, oh, just use iodized sea salt, you'll get plenty. Um, that's the general feeling that's, you know, around the country, and that's what's made it so hard for us to work with iodine for the last 20 years. It's just people assuming that iodized salt provides enough iodine for their their nutritional needs, which, you know, maybe if it's just the thyroid gland, possibly, you know, it's getting close. But being as the whole body needs the, needs the iodine, you just can't get it from the diet. And that goes to soil depletion in the farming process. Uh, elements are being washed out. So you know, iodine is no different. So then with iodized salt, though, I've also read a couple of places, and I don't, I don't know what the, st the statistics are on this or if this is true, but that iodized sea salt, uh, once it's the container is open, most of the iodine ends up evaporating anyway. Is that true as far as you know? Um, no, it's still there, but it's in such a small amount that it's really borderline therapeutic. And it's very interesting. Before the advent of iodized salt in this country back in the 20s, there was no incidence of Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Immediately after iodine was introduced into the salt, we get this rash of increase of Hashimoto's disease. So it just shows that it's a, a suboptimal amount of iodine and you need to have some other sources. Well, that would be, I, I think, uh, if I've got the timeline right, when salt became they started refining salt down to just basically sodium chloride without all of the other minerals that would naturally occur in the ocean or the uh, air, the salt caves or things like that where they would typically find, or salt mines, I should say, where they would find it. So as they did with white bread, essentially, they take what was a whole grain and turn it into not much of anything, and then they re-fortify it with these other vitamins and minerals to, in theory, make it like it was when it was a whole grain. Kind of the same mm -hmm. idea with iodized salt? Uh, kind of the same idea. You know, everything else has been removed. But more importantly, the amount put into salt is just not adequate. And do you believe that even if someone's using something like real salt or Celtic salt or Himalayan salt, that they're still, because of the soil depletion, they're still not enough? It is still not enough. Okay. Now, you have some insight into that, I know, because uh, you actually run iodine sufficiency tests, uh, urine analysis, uh, analyses, and I want to talk about that in a little bit, but let's, let's keep running down uh, the iodine because I asked you a question prior to recording that I was, uh, I kind of thought I might know the answer, uh, but uh, I thought it was a really interesting answer about iodine deficiency and, and kind of the proof being in those tests. So let's talk about that in just a minute. Um, are there ways that people can get more iodine uh, short of supplementation? Are there foods that are more rich in iodine that are, tip that are suggested? Other than supplementation with a specific iodine mm -hmm. preparation? Um, no, as with all soil conditions, the plants that grow in it 
are going to respond to the amount of nutrient in the soil. And because of depletion, I just don't think that you can get a plant source or a natural source, uh, food source that will actually provide enough iodine. And you feel like it's suboptimal levels in things like kelp and bladderwrack and those types of sea uh, vegetables as well? I believe so. Okay. And there again, you know, there may be exceptions to the rule and you would have to test the new, you know, the food product for iodine levels. Gotcha. And that okay. probably becomes economically not feasible for the normal consumer. Right. All right. So then um, how does the iodine deficiency, you, you already mentioned Hashimoto's that there, we didn't see that prior to the twenties. We see it all the time now, of course. Um, what other things are uh, related to iodine insufficiency in the body? Um, cystic breast disease is probably the number one thing. So breast lumps, and that is a condition that responds very nicely to iodine. Okay. And then we have physicians that are using iodine for a number of other conditions, whether it's um, general health, mental function, just a, a general supplement that will help invigorate the whole body. You mentioned prostate, and of course, prostate and breast conditions are oftentimes, uh, you know, linked based on the type of tissue. Is the, are there is there evidence that iodine deficiency can create prostate issues? There haven't been any studies that I know of that look at that. So we don't know, but because of what we see with cystic breast uh, issues, in my mind anyway, it would seem that there may be a role that iodine could play with prostate health as well then. Yes, that's what the, all the doctors we work with feel. Just no studies to back it up, but it makes sense essentially. Yeah, it's kind of a, yeah. Got it. Okay. So the iodine itself as a supplement um, is a really, really interesting supplement to me because when I look at things around my shop, Vitality Nutrition, um, let's just say, for instance, uh, a magnesium supplement. So we say stay sort of in the same area or a selenium supplement. I have magnesium supplements that start at, I think, about 65 milligrams for little kids and maybe the max dose that you'll see on a magnesium supplement will be four or 500 milligrams. So there's, there's a range there, but when you look at adults, it's typically between about 205 or 600 milligrams. And when we look at something like selenium, I've got a 50, I've got a 100 and I've got a 200 microgram. So the range isn't really, really big there. But when you look at iodine, um, I've seen products that are 150 micrograms. So that's, you know, 0.15 of a milligram all the way up to 50 milligrams, the range mm -hmm. is massive. Um, first off, why do you think there is such a huge range in iodine supplements on the market? Because there is some controversy about how much somebody ought to be taking. So the first question is, why do you think there's such a big range? It ends up being a little confusing for consumers. Sure. Um, I think when iodine RDAs were set up, the idea was thinking that iodine only was important to thyroid function, and that's where the 150 microgram number comes in. It's felt that 150 micrograms is enough to support thyroid health. Um, the larger numbers come from the older literature, maybe the turn of the century or 
late 1800s where gram quantities of iodine were used to treat various conditions. Um, the 12.5 to 50 milligram comes from the old pharmacy pharmacopoeias, the Remington. Hmm. And in that issue, in those issues, and this is from maybe the 30s and 40s, the recommended recommended daily dose was 12.5 to 37.5 milligrams for just general health. And that went all the way down to 150 micrograms with the RDAs that were established by uh, the government. Right. Wow. I never knew that. I, that's very, very interesting. I, I've known it's 150, and I've always thought that felt pretty light based on what I've read about iodine. But uh, I had no idea that at one point they were recommending way back when these doses that now are starting to become recognized as potentially more effective doses uh, today uh, based on some of the more uh, new evidence that we have. That's fascinating. So when people are looking at iodine, I think I've, I've run into this with uh, a few other things because when we're talking about the human body, we're talking about balance. And it's sometimes not as much how much of a thing you have, but how much of a thing you have in relationship to another thing. For instance, estrogen and testosterone is a for instance of, of that. Um, and when we look at nutrients, uh, I've, I've done a couple of shows all about vitamin D and vitamin K and magnesium and how those interrelate with each other and the cofactors, uh, cofactor role that they play and how it is pretty important that if you're going to supplement one that you're also watching out what else you've got going on either in your diet or in your supplementation routine. With iodine, there's quite a few cofactors that are involved. And I do think that in conversations that I've had with customers of mine at Vitality, that people get a little intimidated about, okay, well, sure, iodine sounds good, but what if I take too much and I'm not getting the, enough of some of these other things? How do I know I'm, you know, bringing this into the body in an effective uh, and efficient way. So what do you know about, uh, you know, what your doctors are recommending in terms of cofactors with iodine to make sure that people are optimizing the benefit? Okay. Uh, there was a protocol developed by Dr. Guy Abraham. He calls it the ortho-iodo supplementation protocol. It involves adding at least 200 micrograms of selenium, one to three grams of vitamin C, four to 600 milligrams of magnesium, and then a cofactor called ATP Boost, which is niacin, 500 milligrams, and no flush niacin with riboflavin. And that's to help with the organification issue within the cell of iodine. So the vitamin C side helps transport or simport iodine into the cell the B vitamins help organify to activate the iodine within the cell. So that's why those are important. Okay. And in the show uh, description, for those of you listening, especially if you're driving down the road, like I know a lot of people are when they listen to this podcast, um, we'll have under the protocol section uh, that information for you so you can review that and, and determine how you want to do this. Uh, so don't feel like you had to jot all that down uh, just now. We'll have the information in the show description. Uh, but it is important to understand that iodine on its own is going to be far less effective than iodine with those cofactors in terms of getting the iodine not just where it needs to be, but then also activating it once it's there if you want to optimize the benefit that you're looking for from iodine. Um, 
there's also some concern about uh, iodine and its detoxification properties um, kind of pushing things out of the body uh, in terms of starting too fast or potentially uh, having a Herxheimer's reaction or something like that. What can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, what we're primarily concerned with as far as a Herxheimer reaction or detox is the bromide levels of the body. When you start pushing bromide out of the body with iodine, you can get headache. It can come out on the skin, so you get skin rash. High levels of bromide will cause drowsiness or lethargy. So those are the major concerns. It doesn't seem like when fluoride is pushed out that you notice a whole lot of side effects. And fluoride in particular takes a very long time to detox because most of the fluoride is stored in the bones. So it has to be pushed out, um, which can be a, a multi-year process. So that's an interesting thing, though, because as you said at the very beginning of the show, people think of iodine, they usually think of thyroid. That that's I would have to think 95% of people that if you mention iodine, the first word that might come to mind is thyroid. Um, mm -hmm. But that's a really interesting point that I think people need to understand, and I think it's maybe one of the most underappreciated benefits of iodine is the detoxification property uh, that, that it has. Now, fluoride, a lot of people listening to natural health podcasts like this one know that we have an excess of fluoride in many cases, uh, in uh, particularly in areas where fluoride is in the water and things like that. Uh, but I don't think that most people know that you can get rid of it with iodine. So you do say it's a slow process, but over time, uh, you feel like iodine is the best way to detoxify any excess fluoride in the body? That has been our experience. You know, when we look at a 24-hour urine iodine test with fluoride mm -hmm. and you compare that to a spot test, a spot test is before you start any iodine. So if you do a spot test and then you take the 50 milligram load for the test, you can almost always see increased levels of fluoride and bromide being pushed out of the body. So that's the way we know it detoxes those two. That's fantastic. Now, bromide, uh, can we talk just a little bit? I think a lot of people don't even know what that is uh, and why it could be potentially a problem in the body. Sure. Bromide is a, a toxin that is added to flame retardants, or it's a component of a lot of flame retardants. Um, it's used as a preservative in some situations. Also, it is used in the, the bread making process for a leavening agent. And it used to be that uh, iodine was used, but it was removed in favor of bromide. So you get the, the bromide buildup over time and it excretes very slowly. So you just, it's a, like hitting your thumb with a hammer. You keep doing it day in and day out. And pretty soon you uh, build up high levels. And bromide is sneaky. It hides in the peripheral fat. And what, what is the problem with bromide? What makes it toxic? Um, bromide mainly is the drowsiness that it causes when it gets into the system. And then it blocks the utilization of iodine. So that if you look at the periodic table of elements, bromide is a halide, just like iodine. So the body recognizes it 
as similar, and it will try to substitute bromide instead of iodine in the tissue, particularly thyroid tissue. So you get a, a buildup of bromide hindering iodine utilization of the thyroid, there you, it will lead to hypothyroidism. That's really, really fascinating to me because hypothyroidism is such a common condition uh, we see uh, all over the place. And when we look at hypothyroidism, and when I say we, I mean, generally in, in medicine, there are, I actually just had a doctor on, a functional medicine doctor talking about thyroid blood testing and reference ranges and TSH versus, you know, the other things that you can look at, which I thought was a really fascinating uh, interview and discussion, but we don't ever hear much, if at all, in fact, I'm, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody until you that specifically brought this up, that perhaps part of the problem is a significant imbalance of these types of uh, elements in the thyroid. So bromide can essentially go where, where iodine is intended to go, uh, and fluoride as well, does it hang out in the thyroid also? Or uh, not really. Okay, so it primarily bromide. Bone, yeah, specific bone. It may have some effect, you know, with the thyroid gland, but it's mostly the bromide. Okay, and so detoxifying bromide could play a significant role uh, in thyroid health and particularly hypothyroidism. And it's interesting to me that kind of one of the big answers to both would be iodine because you're likely deficient in iodine. If you are deficient in iodine, your thyroid is not going to function optimally. And yet part of the problem is that there's something in there that's kind of looks like iodine in the bromide. And so if we get the enough iodine in, what, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is over time, it's going to push the bromide out and we're going to remedy the toxicity issue as well as the deficiency issue with one tool. That's absolutely right. And the, the reason that bromide is such a problem with the thyroid is bromide will in, interfere with the symporter, which is the transport of the iodine across the cell wall, as well as the organification process inside the cell. The way fluoride interferes is it just blocks or hinders the absorption at the cell wall level. So fluoride works just on one mechanism. Bromide works on both the important mechanisms for iodine utilization. All right. And so I, man, I, I love that. I, that's really, really interesting. I've, I've always known that bromide was uh, an issue and I, I had read that it created some thyroid issues, but at least in my mind, this didn't all come together until this conversation right now. I think that's really powerful information. Thank you for, for sharing that. So then there are a few things that I think people are going to have questions on that I want to make sure that we cover here. Uh, we've already talked about the cofactors, uh, and we've talked about you know the usefulness of iodine and the detoxification detoxification properties that sort of thing. In terms of someone who wants to start supplementing iodine, um, first off, there's one that I think is more well known than any other iodine, um, known as Lugol's iodine. Uh, what does that mean? If people that don't understand what Lugol's iodine is versus just iodine or some other iodine supplement, sure. Lugol's solution is essentially iodine and potassium iodide mixed together. The reason that you mix them is iodine is relatively insoluble in water. It just will not go into solution. 
if you place potassium iodide in the water first, it increases the solubility of the iodine. So essentially you get both potassium iodide and iodine in solution. And it's important to have both because iodine seems to have a preference for the skin where potassium iodide has a preference for the thyroid. So you need both forms in order to, to supplement the body completely. Okay. And you mentioned solution, which is, I think a lot of people think of it as a liquid, but Lugol uh, also is available in a tablet form. Yes. Essentially with our laboratory, what, what we have done is we have the, we make the Lugol solution and then we absorb it on a media, dry it, take the water out and then make a compressed tablet out of it. Okay. So, but the same, everything that you just said about the solution would apply to the tablets as far as absorption and utilization. Yes, that's okay. true. All right. Okay. So then that's question number one. Question number two then is where, uh, where is it typically suggested that people start in terms of dosage? Cause we already talked about this crazy range of dosing that's available out there. Uh, you mentioned that you feel like the, the best information that we have on this it sounds like starts at 12 and a half milligrams, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, you have a range that goes 12 and a half, 25, and even 50 milligrams. So how do people know where they ought to begin? Um, I think that the best suggestion would be to follow the, the Guy Abraham ortho supplementation protocol where you start on the cofactors before you begin the iodine. The reason you want to do that is that you will eliminate the potential for adverse side effects. In other words, a too fast detox. Mm -hmm. And then that protocol recommends starting 12.5 a day for a week. And the second week go to 25 milligram and then gradually work up to 50 milligram. So you don't get a, a huge detox at the very beginning. And for people that are concerned about 50 milligrams sounding like a huge amount of iodine compared to what they've seen and certainly compared to the RDA, uh, what do we know in terms of evidence as far as toxicity or concerns at high doses? Um, it's interesting. If you look back in the early medical literature around the turn of the century, the 1900s, gram quantities of iodine were used. So I would consider those huge. Yeah, they were in use in everyday practice. Um, and one nice thing about iodine is that once all the body stores are full, everything is excreted in the urine. So unless you take huge amounts, your body will be able to clear it. So basically the body uses what it needs and then eliminates the rest. And there's no evidence of uh, excess buildup in any tissues or in the liver or anything like that. It doesn't seem to. Although if you get iodine sufficient after three or four months of 50 milligram, and then you completely stop, conversely, in three or four months, you'll be deficient again. So mm. there is a, some dose that needs to be taken on a daily basis in order to support the sufficiency. So it, and we it, found that to be like 12.5 to 25 milligram a day. As more of a maintenance dose. 
Yes. Okay. All right. So that information also for you listening, uh, we'll uh, uh, digest that down and get it into the show description as well so that you know what you're looking at as far as um, starting dose, uh, kind of your uh, building dose, I guess you could call it, um, and then your maintenance dose. And one thing that I thought was really important that you and I discussed, Charles, prior to uh, beginning this podcast, that I loved that you said because... I feel like it's overlooked too much in medicine today, and that simply is that people ought to be paying attention to how they feel with what they're doing, uh, as opposed to only relying on a blood test or a, you know, a urine test or whatever they're looking at, but actually looking at, okay, how do I feel at 12.5 milligrams? How do I feel at 25 milligrams or 50 milligrams? And really letting your body gauge uh, probably where you ought to be especially once we're talking in that maintenance phase. Yes, I agree with that 100%. Yeah, I, see, I think it's interesting. I, had, I, had, I mentioned the other doctor that I had on. He's actually my uh, naturopathic doctor that I see myself, Dr. Todd Cameron. And he mentioned that six or seven times during the last interview. He said, one thing that we just don't pay enough attention to, especially with thyroid, because people are looking at TSH primarily. Doctors are looking at TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone is kind of the big marker uh, that they're looking at. And people can have good TSH and feel lousy uh, because of thyroid type symptoms. And if you're not looking deeper than that, or you're not paying attention to how you feel, then uh, you're probably missing the mark. And I, I found that to be pretty refreshing because we're not just looking at test results. We're actually talking to the patient saying, you know, how does this feel when you do it like this? So I think there's real value in that. Um, so it sounds like to me, you're saying that generally speaking, at least according to Guy Abraham, we're starting a, a little bit slower, working our way up. You did mention this, and I want to clarify this to make sure I'm clear on it. Start with the cofactors first, which again, we'll have those cofactors listed in the show description for you. Um, when you say start with them first, are you talking a week, a month? How long do you think you do that prior to starting the iodine? I think probably a week is sufficient. So not very long. Although Dr. Abraham, when he developed the protocol, he liked to have his patients on it for a month before okay. he started iodine. Now you mentioned something else, and and I don't want to um, I don't want to uh, take away from that because I personally think that what you're saying about the guy Abraham protocol makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's uh, it's a really nice kind of middle ground of starting a little slow, letting your body adjust, getting things built up, and then and and maybe it takes you a little bit longer to get you where you want than just jumping all in. But one of the guys that's one of the biggest names in iodine and and thyroid out there is Dr. David Brownstein, and you say you met, you work with him, and he just throws people on fifty milligrams right out of the gate because he I guess he doesn't see very many issues with that and likes to get people results a little faster. Is that what you've witnessed? That's my impression, yes. Yeah, that's interesting. So in other words, you can do it maybe suboptimally, but maybe you can't do it wrong necessarily in terms of, you know, really creating a bunch of problems for yourself. Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, I think that's all really, really uh, interesting stuff. So with bromide, you mentioned that fluoride can be a few years. Uh, how long do you think it takes based on what you've seen with your test results and things like that, to get the bromide out once iodine supplementation begins? It's interesting. It's, it seems like the bromide follows the, the 
pattern of how much iodine sufficiency you've achieved. So in three or four months, typically of 50 milligram of iodine, you can get your bromide number in half or less. So it will, as iodine goes up, it's pushing more bromide out. So that makes sense. When you reach sufficiency, you should have pushed most of the bromide out. So the cup can only hold so much of one thing, and it's either going to hold a combination of bromide and iodine, or you're going to get the iodine all the way out and push all the bromide out. Yes. Okay. That's, I think, really helpful as well. So now let's talk about testing, because at your lab, um, Hakala Labs, uh, you do testing for iodine, but you also test for bromide and fluoride, and I believe also chloride. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. And we actually have these test kits at Vitality now, um, but we've. W- I wanted to do this show uh, before I started talking to people about them, make sure that I understand the best way to utilize these kits. First off, what is the test? What are, what are you actually testing uh, from a, someone who, who does one of these? Uh, there's two basic forms of the test. There's a 24 our iodine or urine collection. So what happens is the patient will take a 50 milligram iodine load and then collect urine for the next 24 hours. We compare the amount of iodine excreted in the sample to what was taken to obtain amount of iodine sufficiency. Typically with someone that's not been supplementing with iodine about most people will be about 70% sufficient. So day in and day out, that's a number we see. Maybe you know, sixty-five to seventy-two, but that—that's about the average. The other test is a spot test, which is a non-supplemented snapshot. So typically, first thing in the morning, you would collect your first urine, and then send that in for testing. And then, in addition to that, we look at bromide and fluoride and chloride levels in those samples if the patient wants. And what's the advantage of one type of test over the other? Um, The spot gives you a snapshot of dietary iodine intake, and it can pick up severe iodine deficiency. The 24-hour collection looks at whole body iodine sufficiency. Ah, okay. So if someone's wanting to do one or the other, do you typically recommend the the uh, 24 hour? Yes, that's, that's our most the, popular test. The, the better test. Okay. Yeah. So with that, um, you, you can test either just iodine or you can test all four or, or any combination that's up to the person that's, that's uh, submitting the test for the sample? Yes. Okay. And when someone is testing uh, for that and you're saying that you have a 70%, an average of a 70% sufficiency, what you mean is that there's about a 30% deficiency. There's there's 30% of what ought to be there isn't there. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And th- I asked you this question before, but I'm going to ask you so that you can repeat it to my audience. Um, have you ever done a test from someone not supplementing with iodine where you saw that they were sufficient, where they had the 100% that they needed? No. So that is a really (laughs) definitive answer in my book, uh, because, you know, we talked about this at the beginning that, you know, we probably have this deficiency, but here's a lab that does these tests all the time 
and they've yet to see anybody that has a sufficiency of iodine unless they are already supplementing it. Correct. Pretty, pretty interesting stuff. So you can just about assume with or without a test that iodine is, is needed. But um, if you like to have a baseline and, and see, you know, what's happening uh, currently, which I love to have when it's available to me, I'm definitely intending to do this test myself. And I'm happy to even share my results here on the air with you. So I intend to do it, uh, the 24-hour collection. And um, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit probably um, abnormal, I guess, because I have supplemented iodine but not consistently and not for a little while. So I don't know if it'll, it'll matter because you said that usually within a few months, it kind of washes out anyway if you're not supplementing it daily. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So maybe mine will be pretty typical because I've, I've taken, I, I don't think I've taken iodine consistently now for a couple of months. So we'll, uh, we'll see how it turns out. But I'm going to do that because I've never known other than what I've read saying that I'm probably deficient. I've never had evidence of that, uh, at least in terms of, of a, a urinalysis. So I think that's going to be pretty fascinating. But I've never tested for bromide or fluoride or chloride. And so I intend to do the whole, uh, the whole thing and, and get all four of those. And I think in my case, uh, I'll probably test again in six months or a year uh, after supplementing iodine, uh, as it's being suggested here, and see where I end up. Because I do know from my functional medicine doctor, Dr. Cameron, that my thyroid is definitely not performing optimally in terms of thyroid hormone production. So I know I've got that going on and I want to address that. But as you said, Charles, there's a whole lot of other reasons why iodine is a, a really important element and it certainly doesn't stop at the thyroid. Yes, that's right. You know, and, and I just thought of something and it goes along with the question we answer every day, day in and day out. That is concerning blood levels of thyroid hormones and TSH. Yeah. When you start iodine therapy, and if you are deficient, the substance that transports iodine across the cell wall is called symporter. So you do not need much symporter if you do not have a lot of iodine intake. So you start taking 12.5 to 50 milligrams of iodine a day, all of a sudden, the need for Symporter skyrockets. The only way for Symporter to be produced by the body is it is stimulated by TSH. So there is the potential for your TSH levels to go sky high when you start iodine supplementation. But if you look at the T3, T4 hormone levels, they remain normal. So, and by high, I mean really high. Normal uh, TSH by most labs is like one to five. You can see levels 60 to 200. And when your physician sees levels like that, uh, a red flag goes up and it scares everybody. But then you ask the patient, how do you feel? Well, I feel fine. You know, if you have a TSH of above 20, you probably would have a hard time getting out of bed each day. You would be so drowsy. So this is an artificial elevation of TSH because of the need to produce more symporter to transport iodine across the cell wall. And there's no harm in too high TSH. It's, it's used just as a marker to indicate that perhaps your thyroid's not functioning well. 
That's correct. So when you said, I want to clarify this for people listening too, because I know I'll get this question if I don't. If you, you said that normally someone who's not supplementing iodine has a TSH of 20, you're going to be super lethargic. Uh, oh, because be, yeah, very concerned. Yeah, because your thyroid is probably barely pumping out hormone at all at that point. But you could have a TSH of 200 if you're supplementing high levels of iodine in, the, in this range that we're talking about, the 12.5 to 50, um, and feel better than you have in a long time, potentially, even though TSH would indicate otherwise in a blood test. Yes. And so then this, one of the reasons that I wanted to have Dr. Cameron on and have you on uh, real close together is because I thought that these two conversations would marry really, really nicely. Um, and on his, uh, the conversation I had with him, he recommended 12.5 milligrams of, of iodine. He specifically mentioned Lugol's. Um, and I know he's a, he's a fan of uh, Dr. Brownstein and Abraham and he was unsure. And I, and I told him that I was going to be talking to you as well and that I'd be kind of getting two different sides. Uh, and he was unsure of whether t more than 12.5 was, was useful. I don't think he was particularly concerned that it was dangerous, uh, but useful. So here's the question I have for you. We, we have a lot of, it sounds like tons of anecdotal evidence that this is a really effective way to go. And there's some clinical evidence, and correct me if I say any of this incorrectly, uh, clinical evidence, at least based on urine tests, that the higher dose will clear bromide, uh, fluoride from the body much more quickly, that you'll start to feel better more quickly. So you've got the anecdotal and you've got the, the urine test. But what do we know, um, or is there, because that was his question, is there any information that we have in the scientific literature that would indicate that, um, you know, like double-blind studies, that type of thing, that would indicate that 25 milligrams or 50 milligrams is better than 12.5 milligrams or that you can't get there with just 12.5 or not quickly enough? What, what do we know about that outside of the urine testing and the anecdotal evidence that we that we know we have? Um. That's a tough question. I do not know. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what he said. And I think basically the three of us here are, are on the same wavelength of let's get people feeling better and optimize health through optimizing, at least in this case, we're talking about the thyroid, optimizing the way the thyroid functions. But I would anticipate, and, and this is just coming from how I kind of see the world of medicine and, and clinical studies, there's probably not a lot of money in doing a study like that. Uh, maybe there's not anybody that wants to fund a study like that to try and figure it out. So then we are left with some evidence that is not, you know, gold standard, double blind, placebo controlled, but a lot of evidence. And one of the things that I love about my doctor, Dr. Cameron, is that he said anecdotal evidence does matter. We still have to pay attention to how the patient feels uh, because there's not going to be a double-blind placebo-controlled study on every single marker and, and every single individual. And not only that, every individual responds a little differently anyway. But it does sound like in this case, we have, in, in my mind, we have enough evidence that A, iodine at these doses that we're talking about is safe. B, it tends to really help people feel better and do better. And C, we can definitely see that we're detoxifying with it from the bromide, the fluoride, and that we're not building it up in the cells in a toxic way. So 
my take on it, frankly, is it's worth a try. Let's see, especially for someone who are dealing who is dealing with a thyroid issue, um, it, because it doesn't seem like there's any harm in it, and there could be great benefit. What? How would you respond to that? I think that's the way you know most of the physicians we work with feel is that it's worth a try. Yeah, because it it likely to help, and we don't see a way that it can hurt essentially. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, I appreciate that and, and uh, appreciate you being willing to, you know, kind of step into that because it is, there is some controversy. There are some people that feel like, you know, 50 milligrams is too much. There are some people that feel like 12.5 milligrams is too much uh, and that we get plenty in salt, right? So there's a wide range of opinions about how this stuff works. But my feeling is based on what I've read, what I've seen, speaking to you, speaking to Dr. Cameron and and I've read a couple of books all about iodine from from people that do, you know, based on their practices of medicine, including Dr. Brownstein, uh, have shown that the higher doses work for their patient uh, for their patient base. And so I uh, I just wanted to clarify that as much as I can for people to try and take a little bit of the controversy out of it and maybe a little bit of the fear out of uh, you know giving it a try and and seeing what could actually work for them. So we have a few minutes left. I want to ask you just a couple of other questions that I think are, are pretty important here that I know people are going to probably have. You mentioned Hashimoto's. I have heard from generally the people I'm hearing this from are patients of uh, kind of uh, conventional medical doctors that if they've been diagnosed with Hashimoto's, they've been told don't take iodine. Now, everything I've heard outside of that seems that doesn't seem like a good recommendation <laughs> so how do you answer that and and what should a patient think because we're not doctors we're not prescribing this or any of that kind of stuff it's not it's not where you've got a, a higher level of expertise and licensure than i do for this but it seems like there's some to me backwards thinking there so what what do you think with hashimoto's and thyroid what what are your doctors that you're providing iodine to, how are they treating that? Well, there's two schools of thought, and that's the toughest question that we answer. And we just tell people, well, some physicians that we work with feel that iodine is contraindicated with Hashimoto's. The other half say, hey, Hashimoto's is a symptom of iodine deficiency. Yeah, and that's, you so couldn't get it, two it, different answers to that question, could you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a darn, I would I wish you wouldn't ask that question. <laughs> but, you know, there's no good answer. There's just, yeah. there's two schools of thought and it's black and white with it, the physicians on either side. Yeah, it definitely seems to be. And yet, I don't know. And again, not your doctor, don't want to be your doctor. This isn't medical advice. But uh, I think if for me, if I were diagnosed with Hashimoto's, I would certainly be, I think I'd be looking at the, uh, at least the, it's worth a try uh, side of things and see how my body responds. Because if, if, if the people I've talked to who are dealing with Hashimoto's, um, it's a, can be a real struggle. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot in the way of support for it. Uh, I talk to people that, oh, yeah, I'm medicated for it, but I don't feel better. I'm not doing better. Uh, and so, and, and Dr. Cameron certainly has a different way of looking at Hashimoto's too, I think, than most. And, and he, um, or at least than, uh, conventional 
uh, MDs. And if, if you didn't hear that episode, by the way, I've alluded to it a lot. Um, it aired, uh, I'm not sure exactly. I think it's only about a week or two weeks ahead of when this interview will air, but it's uh, Dr. Todd Cameron on thyroid. And I think these two together will give you a lot of really valuable information uh, when you're looking at um, how the thyroid works, what blood test markers matter, and how to utilize iodine to you know better benefit you. Um, Dr. Cameron also mentioned magnesium. He mentioned selenium. He talked about some of these same things as cofactors as well. Uh, hyperthyroidism. Is iodine an issue there? Uh, iodine in the old days was the treatment for hyperthyroidism. Interesting. So and there's, you know, there's the same argument. Some people say never give iodine to a hyper patient. And others say, well, that's the way it was treated, you know, around the 18, 1900s. And there, you know, it seemed to work fine. Yeah. Okay. So there again, it's a... It, uh, uh, maybe an impossible question to answer it, according to the literature, but we do have some history showing that it has been effective uh, at times. Is there anything else, uh, Charles, that you want to add to this conversation or to kind of tie it up with a bow here at the end? No, I think that it's been very thorough and you've asked uh, appropriate questions. And I think that, you know, it, it will start people thinking. I hope so. I hope so. Like I said, your conversation uh, on boron uh, that you had with me not too long ago certainly uh, raised a lot of eyebrows. I think people are, I imagine some people listening to it are like, what's boron? Uh, it's just not that much uh, in the discussion out there. Uh, iodine certainly most people, I think, at least know what it is or know of it. Uh, they know it's in their salt or whatever. Uh, people with thyroid issues certainly have read and seen things. But I think one of the biggest challenges is what we ended with here, and that is that the information is coming from a variety of different viewpoints, um, different schools of thought. There is confusion. And what I hope that we accomplished on this episode is uh, that we've helped to empower you to make some better decisions for your health. Uh, in regards to iodine, not just with your thyroid, but with your whole body wellness. And I'll commit to you right now that uh, I will be doing the 24-hour test. I will be testing out this protocol that we've discussed that will be in the show description. And I will be sharing my results with you because I'm also getting regular blood tests with Dr. Cameron uh, to see you know, how this uh, plays out. Uh, because for the first time in my life, um, I have a condition uh, based on my blood tests that I ought to be doing something about potentially pharmaceutically. And uh, so I'm going to share a lot of that with you uh, over the next little while and let you know how things go for me uh, with, uh, with that. And frankly, this conversation is as important to me as uh, any podcast I've done in a long, long time uh, because I feel like it's empowered me to make some better decisions for my own health, which I absolutely love. And I, I hope that you got that from it as well. Charles Hockla, you are a wealth of information. It was great to have you on. Uh, we may just have to do it again on another topic down the road. Thank you so much for joining sure. me on Vitality I appreciate Radio. your time. All right. Thank you. Okay. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show. I hope this was useful. Remember a couple of things. If you have questions, call us. Uh, there's a lot of detail in what we talked about, though. But if you have questions, you can call 801-292-6662. You can also jump online, vitalitynutrition.com. 
There will be links to the Lugol's iodine, the various potencies in the show description. There will be links to the cofactors in the show description, so you can look at the, the different items that we have that are available to potentially utilize for this. Um, again, none of this substitutes medical advice. Uh, this is for uh, educational purposes only, but I hope that it has been very educational for you. And we will list the uh, basic protocols that we discussed as far as the cofactors, and we'll, uh, I'll list information on the testing as well. All of that will be in the show description, so don't skip over that because uh, that's where all the rubber meets the road with this conversation, and uh, the information that you'll need to further your education will be there for you. Thank you so much for listening to me on Vitality Radio. It's been such a pleasure doing this show for you and every show. Uh, we are just now in August celebrating 46 years in business at Vitality Nutrition, and I can't tell you how grateful I am that we have people like you to keep us there uh, doing what we love to do most. So thank you so much. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. been listening to the vitality radio podcast enjoy your week in the meantime jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it vitality radio is researched and written by jared st Clair. our awesome music is by brian bob young support vitality radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on apple podcasts youtube or your favorite podcast source don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you.